This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. This is um, from Philippians 2, and it's verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. And you can go ahead and be seated. Thank you. So uh, I should explain who our guests are before we get started. Uh, Taylor, thank you for noting that there is a giant group of people uh, in green shirts uh, sitting here. So uh, this is a uh, part of a youth group from Central Bearden Church, right, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they are out here. They came here today uh, because they're going to be spending the next week down in Salem with an organization called World Changers. And they're going to be doing um, all sorts of uh, service stuff and work in the community as part of a mission trip that they're doing. Uh, So why come to Theophilus? See, they got on planes in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is Eastern time zone at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 o'clock our time. So they got up about midnight uh, our time, 3 a.m. their time, and they've been here. I met them at the airport, and uh, we went directly from the airport to get some lunch at Cascade Station. Then we went to uh, Voodoo Donuts because you got to go at least to one place that has offensive donuts in the city of Portland, and we know there's more than one. And um, then we went to the Portland Saturday Market, and uh, Abby Jaden says hi to everybody. Uh, so I get to see, we got to see Abby. And then we came here, so they're exhausted, and, uh, but they're wonderful folks. And my connection with this is that this guy here, with his hat on in church, is... <laughs> Uh, my youngest brother. This is uh, Nicholas Campbell, and I am just so thrilled that they chose a work site out in Oregon. Uh, for many of them, this is their first time to Oregon, including my youngest brother, Nicholas, been here eight years. Just Sam. Uh, but he has uh, a wonderful family that didn't get to come with him, but he's got a bunch of ton of young kids, and so like it's expensive to come all the way across the country, and so I am just overjoyed. It's been a great uh, spending the day with you guys, and uh, we're going to go do some stuff this evening. I'm going to keep them up as late as I can, so like 7.30, and then in the morning, uh, we're going to go to a couple, uh, hit a couple spots, and they're going to be on their way to Salem, so um, thank you for making them feel welcome, and Yeah, thank you for wearing shirts to identify yourself as guests tonight. So we're going to move on in our um, preaching through the Apostles' Creed. And so tonight, we're coming to really what is a central affirmation of the Creed, and that is that Jesus Christ is God's only Son and is our Lord. In fact, everything in the Apostles' Creed, if you look at it, if you pay attention to it when we recite it, everything in the Apostles' Creed is pointing to that affirmation that Jesus Christ is. Is Lord. It's either building up to that or it's unpacking what that line means. It is the hub, and every part of the creed radiates out 
from that. In fact, there's so much going on in this particular line that we're going to take two weeks to talk about it. So this week, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, Jesus Christ, God's only Son. Next week, we're going to talk about our Lord. What does it mean for, to make this affirmation that Jesus is Lord? Now, for those of us who have grown up in the church uh, like I have, uh, maybe this phrase of the Apostles' Creed is kind of boring to us. Maybe it's familiar. I believe that Jesus Christ is God's only Son. Maybe it's too familiar. And so your temptation may be just to kind of tune out. You've heard every sermon you've needed to hear preached on Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, But I'm going to ask you to resist that temptation. I want to see if you can see with fresh eyes just how scandalous and marvelous this part of the Apostles' Creed is. Because the entire Christian faith rests on this single affirmation. If we don't understand what we mean when we say that Jesus Christ is God's only Son and He is our Lord, then we don't understand what it means to be a Christian. We have effectively lost our way. I think it's worth reminding us again that at this time, uh, that the Apostles' Creed is better understood as a confession of faith than maybe a creed. Sometimes the word creed carries a little bit of baggage because later creeds, Nicene Creed, um, the Ephesian Creed, these other later creeds of church history, uh, they came out of a pretty political and theological context. There was a reason that those creeds needed to be, write, to, uh, be written, and it was usually to combat some sort of heresy. People were saying or doing things in the church that were a little off, and so a group of people got together and said, we need to stop that. And so they wrote a new declaration of the faith or a renewed declaration of the faith. And sometimes the political and theological stuff that was going on there can kind of taint people's views of those creeds. But this creed is more of a confession of faith than it is a creed. We don't actually know who wrote it. With the Nicene Creed, I can give you an exact date and a group of people that wrote it. But the Apostles' Creed seems to have sort of emerged in the first two centuries of Christianity in a couple of different forms. Maybe the simplest version of it, we heard in our scripture a little bit earlier, Jesus is Lord. That may have been actually the first creedal formulation. We see that in Romans 10. We see it in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We read it in uh, Philippians 2. Jesus is Lord. That is a confession of faith. And that's really what the Apostles' Creed is trying to unpack for us. So as we'll see this week and next week, the simplicity of this particular statement Jesus is God's only Son and is our Lord. We shouldn't like, be tempted to think of that as reductionistic. It's not as simple as it seems. In fact, there's kind of a trend towards a theological minimalism in our culture today. People want to get away from maybe certain kinds of Christianity or certain connotations of what it means to be Christian, and they want to say things like, uh, well, I just love Jesus. I just follow Jesus. Jesus lives in my heart. Those things may all be true, but you cannot boil the Christian faith down into one of those statements. To be Christian means much, much more than that. And that's what this phrase of the creed is trying to teach us. To be a Christian means much, much more than saying, I love Jesus, or I follow Jesus, or Jesus lives in my heart. It means even more than Jesus saves me from my sin. The creed demands much more from us than that. It it tells us exactly what we need to believe about Jesus and believe about the rest of our orientation towards the world. So if we start to unpack this a little bit, First question that we have to get to is, well, who was Jesus? Right? This is an answer that gets debated on the History Channel every Easter. 
It's a question that has fascinated Christians and non-Christians alike for centuries, and most of the world's great religions acknowledge that there was a guy named Jesus, and he was a person that had great wisdom and great teaching. Of that, there's not really much debate. It's later affirmations about Jesus that we'll get to in a moment that people debate about. Even skeptics will agree that there's good historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, not the figment of, the, of imagination of some group of people. In fact, Roman historian Tacitus in his uh, work Annals, which was written in about 116 AD, uh, he refers to Jesus. He gives a little account of this guy named Jesus. He calls him Christus in there. The context of Tacitus, this Roman historian writing about Jesus, is he's trying to explain in this history book that he's writing about the great fire of Rome that happened in 64 AD, about 50 years before Tacitus was kind of writing all of his stuff down. And so he's saying, listen, um, there's this great fire in Rome. It was during the time of Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero, he blamed it on the Christians. And then he does this little sidebar here because he's like, my readers might not know what a Christian is. And so he says, uh, a Christian is this group of people, they come they, uh, as followers of this guy named Christus, who was put to death by a Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate during the reign of the emperor Tiberius. And then he moves on. Now, Tacitus wasn't a Christian himself. He wasn't making a profession of faith when he wrote this little paragraph in his history book. He goes on to talk about Christians following a most mischievous superstition that led to a hatred of mankind. This very early reference to Jesus and the spread of Christianity is taken as a very, as very strong evidence for at least the existence of this person named Jesus who we are talking about in the creed. This person named Jesus who is called the Christ and who was put to death by a guy named Pontius Pilate, as we also affirm in the creed, and whose followers revered him after his death. So that's what we can know, at least from Tacitus. But what else can we know about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, we have four Gospels in the Christian New Testament that give us four different pictures of this guy named Jesus. Each Gospel has its own particular angle. Maybe you've heard this before. It has its own agenda. And none of them are quite biography. None of them claim to be what we would call a biographical sketch of a historical figure. Matthew wants his Jewish audience to connect the dots between their messianic prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies in Jesus. Mark's gospel reads almost like a Twitter thread of major actions and teachings of Jesus with almost no connective tissue in between. Luke's writing in this almost journalistic style to an early Greek or Roman convert, trying to explain the trustworthiness of the stories that that person has heard about Jesus. He's trying to source them well and bridge the cultural gap between the Jewish customs and practices and beliefs and the Gentile world that Theophilus was a part of. John writes to state in no uncertain terms that Jesus was actually divine. And so in order to understand the Bible's claims about Jesus, we kind of have to look at all four of those stories, all four of those gospels, and we have to make a composite image of what we see there. So what, is, what can our composite image look like at the very least? It looks like that this guy named Jesus was a man of unremarkable origins. He was born in Palestine sometime in or around the first century AD. Of his pre-adult life, we actually know very little. 
As an adult, he made a name for himself as an itinerant preacher, as a worker of miracles in and around Galilee and Jerusalem. People flocked to his message of this imminent coming of the kingdom of God, even while they disagreed about what that would actually look like. His teachings and his popularity got him into a lot of hot water with the religious establishment of his day, ultimately resulting in this conspiracy to have him charged with and convicted of crimes of blasphemy against the temple and sedition against the Roman emperor. The death penalty was carried out against him, and it was hoped that his followers would then just disperse because that's what happened every time a rabble-rouser got a group of followers and then they crucified him. Jesus wasn't the first to be crucified for stirring people up into a frenzy. And every time that they crucified one of these guys, the followers went away. But for some reason, the movement did not die out. In fact, it grew as stories of resurrection and sightings of Jesus started to leak out in the days after his crucifixion and his burial. The name Jesus literally means he saves or he rescues. The creed's introduction of Jesus, when we get to it, it's so early in the creed, it doesn't even give us any background or context. We don't review the history of Israel. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about our separation from God in the creed. Instead, there's God, God created heaven and earth. And then there's Jesus Christ. One of the books I was looking at in preparation for this message, a a book by a scholar named Michael Byrd. Michael Byrd, he kind of laments the fact that the creed doesn't have more background information on who this Jesus guy was to give us an idea. In fact, when, when he's writing about this statement, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, he feels the need to pause at that moment and talk about the history of Israel, the fall of humankind, uh, the estrangement that we have from God, and why the, the world needed a savior. He kind of views it as kind of a downfall of the creed, that there's not more explanation on the front end before we get to Jesus. But Karl Barth, who is a 20th century German theologian, you've heard me refer to him before, he would disagree. He acknowledges that, yeah, the creed doesn't begin by referring to sin, death, and humanity and the need for redemption before it introduces Jesus. Instead, he finds it powerful that the creed does the opposite. He writes, Jesus Christ is the background from which all of humanity's misery and despair receive their light, not vice versa. Why might this be the case? See, Bart goes on to write about how he thinks it is um, not helpful for us to stare into what he calls the abyss of our sin, misery, and death, because we can't comprehend the different shades of darkness unless we have seen light first. It's just all darkness to us. We can't know how truly bleak things are without first understanding the grace of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Bart goes on to write, Sin scorches us when it comes under the light of forgiveness, not before. Sin scorches us then by becoming visible as our enmity before God, and therefore by compelling us as our thoughts start out from that at last to question properly. How is it possible that the second article of the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, how is it possible what this second article states? If it can appear to, uh, to, be, if it can appear to us almost impossible that the Creator became creature, it must appear absolutely impossible that the Holy One, whose burning wrath we have evoked, became man in order, in spite of everything, to befriend us. 
Bart's saying we've got to know light before we can understand the depths of darkness. When I read that, I was like, man, that's so true, especially here in Portland. If you want to have a conversation with a neighbor or a friend about spiritual things, you usually, in Portland anyway, you're not going to want to start with their sinfulness. That's probably a non-starter. They don't feel like they have a God-shaped hole in their heart. Instead, if you start talking about where you find hope, where you find joy in life, and how your orientation is towards Jesus, and that in the midst of the rest of the crazy stuff that's going on in our city and in our country, I find hope because there's this guy named Christ that shows me that this world is not exactly as it seems to be, that there's something bigger going on. Then people start to listen because people want to know about hope. And we can talk about sin, but let's talk about hope. Trying to evoke shame or guilt or conviction in a culture like our city doesn't often work. Michael Byrd wants the creed to be clear about what Jesus rescues us from, where Bart sees the creed showing us what Jesus rescues us for. We'll get more into that next week when we explore what it means to call Jesus Christ Lord. But any way you look at it, Christians assert that there's much more to Jesus than just historical fact, than that just he lived. Theologian Alistair McGrath reminds us that from the very beginning, Christians realized that Jesus just could not be treated as an ordinary human being. In Jesus, the message and the messenger are one and the same. Jesus' message is given the weight and status because of who we recognize Jesus to be. And who is that? Christians claim that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. In the Greek, it's Christos. It's the word that Hebrew scholars chose to translate their Hebrew word for anointed one. And that word is Messiah, which we render into Messiah. When they translated their scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, about 200 years before Jesus was born, all the times that they came across the word Messiah, they put in the word Christos. To be anointed is to be consecrated. It's to be set apart for a purpose by the act of being covered in holy oil. And we see this in the story of Israel. When Israel wants a king, Samuel anoints Saul with oil. When Saul's not working out too well, Samuel anoints David with oil. That leads to some pretty awkward confrontations between Saul and David. Because Saul has the job, but David's been anointed as the next king. There's no term limits. David gets the job when Saul dies. So it's kind of awkward for David to be the heir apparent to the throne and kind of be hanging around Saul. When God promised that God's reign would be a forever reign, he promised that he would send an anointed one. Messiah in Hebrew, Christos in Greek. This is called the Davidic promise because it was spoken to David about his lineage that there would be a forever king that would come from the line of David, a forever Messiah. So we call this the Davidic promise, this promise of a Messiah. Now, this promise of a Messiah came to have these like cultural meanings by the time that Jesus came onto the scene. There were some specific kinds of hopes that the people of Israel had for what their Messiah would look like and what their Messiah would do. The people of Israel, they were oppressed and kingless under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and now they're under the oppression of the Romans, and they have a king, sort of. It's a king that's kind of worked out between the temple and the state of Rome in order to keep the state of Rome off of Israel's back. 
So when people whispered about the Messiah, they described this powerful political and military figure, someone who'd make Israel great again. And it was a dangerous claim if you didn't have the means to back it up. Jesus' teachings and actions did not fit what they were looking for. He was neither a great political leader, nor was he an impressive military general. His description of the kingdom of God, this imminent coming kingdom, looked nothing like the powerful state that Israel hoped that it would be. Instead, this guy Jesus described a kingdom in which the last are first, and peace wins out over violence. To call Jesus the Christ is to affirm that at the very least, that all of the hopes of Israel, all of the messianic promises that are made by God to the people of Israel are brought to fulfillment in the life and the work of Jesus and done so in a way that seems to match nobody's expectations. But it goes even further than that. The writers of the New Testament and early Christians make claims that Jesus isn't just God's Messiah and the fulfillment of all this prophecy, but that Jesus and God are one. They do this through the affirmations that they make about him in the Gospels in the New Testament. They affirm that Jesus saves people from their sins. They affirm that Jesus redeems people from estrangement from God. They affirm that Jesus is worthy of worship. All three of these things are affirmations that the Jews had for God alone. To affirm these of a human was blasphemy unless you were calling that human God. Karl Barth, who I read from earlier, he kind of just simply and eloquently puts it, Jesus Christ is God for us. And still the creed goes further. The creed makes this scandalous claim that Jesus Christ is God's only son. His only son. In our pluralistic, postmodern, inclusive culture, to recite this creed is an incredibly exclusive claim. That God has done something unique in Jesus Christ. This exclusivity is at the heart of calling Jesus Christ God's only son. I talk with Portland Christians all the time who really struggle with the only part. It's not that they have a problem with who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. They absolutely believe that Jesus has made the way to reconciliation to God. They affirm all day long that Jesus forgives sins and restores us to right standing with God. And that through Jesus, anyone can have access to God and spend eternity with him. But only? Is that really God's only way? Because there's a lot of other great religions out there. These religions have done great things for the world, introduced great wisdom and good teachings. Maybe God's up to something in these other religions too. Maybe Jesus absolutely leads us to reconciliation with God, but maybe some of these other pathways lead there too. How can we know? How can we know that this claim to exclusivity is right? The creed doesn't ask us to know that. The creed asks us to believe it. A few weeks ago, we talked about what it means to believe in something. Today, we place intellectual knowledge much higher than belief. We say, uh, I don't just believe it to be true, I know it to be true. Or we use the word believe as a way of stating our personal opinion on a matter. Well, I just believe that's wrong. We use it as this sort of weak deflection when we don't want to have a conversation that we would have to muddy up with messy facts. But I think we're using know and believe wrongly. 
There's a philosopher named Valerie McKenzie, and she makes some helpful distinctions between belief and knowledge. She writes, knowing is the state of mind where we have firsthand awareness of an event, something that we've personally experienced through any of our five senses and through our own accomplishments. Belief, on the other hand, she says, is the state of mind where we can choose whether or not to accept what we hear or what we read. An example may help. I know that my wife is married to me because I saw with my own eyes her sign, the marriage license. That is a thing I actually experienced, firsthand knowledge. I believe that my wife loves me because she tells me that she loves me, because I see the things that she does in our life together. But I can't know that she loves me in the way that she knows that she loves me because I can't feel for myself what she feels for me. So I have to believe I have to trust in the things that I'm hearing and seeing from her, these affirmations that she's making that she loves me. I can't know it in the same way. I can't experience it with my five senses, but I can believe that what she says is true. So the creed doesn't ask us to know that Jesus Christ is God's only son. It asks us to do something much bigger than that. The creed asks us to believe that Jesus Christ is God's only son. Calling Jesus the Son indicates also this intimate and unique relationship of Jesus to God the Father. It's a relationship that is most publicly demonstrated in the resurrection. See, God calls Jesus his Son in Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels calls God his Father. And they're describing this eternal relationship that existed before the incarnation of Christ and still exists to this day. The really astonishing part about all of this, to my mind, is how we figure in. By some great mystery, and out of some enormous love, we are made at one with God through the second person of the Trinity, the Son. We are invited to share in the Sonship of Christ. This Sonship is made available to us connected to that whole Davidic promise that we talked about earlier. And even more profoundly, it's made available to us because Jesus Christ, the Son, is part of that interconnected, interwoven trinity that has existed before all time. This is what atonement accomplishes, this at-one stuff. Yes, our sins are forgiven, but that's not the purpose of atonement. That's not the end game of atonement. The end game of atonement is that we are reunited with God, our maker. In fact, the word atonement is an old English word that we just pronounce wrong. It is a smashing together of words. At one meant. At one meant. It means that we are made. When we say atonement, we talk about atonement. We talk about what Jesus Christ did to make us at one with God again. And by this at one meant, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father. Paul calls us fellow heirs with Christ in Romans chapter 8. Fellow heirs with Christ. How crazy is that? That's we, you and me, people enslaved to sin and death, are scooped up and were transformed into fellow heirs alongside the second person of the Trinity. I think it's this that C.S. Lewis has in mind when he writes in his book, The Weight of Glory, that we have never met a mere mortal. 
By that, he means that every other human being that we've ever come in contact with has the spark of the Spirit of God inside them. And when they confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that is fanned into a flame. We truly are little Christs, which is what Christian means. Little Christs. And we learned that Christ means anointed one. So we are little anointed ones. When's the last time you had some oil poured over your head? Because we have never met a mere mortal. I think even though that we are little anointed ones, we often forget who we are and whose we are. That's why coming together week after week like this is helpful for us because it resets our identity when the other six days of the week we get pulled in all these other different directions. And we have other people and other things and other forces in our life making claims on who we are and who we ought to be and who we aren't. On Sundays, we have multiple opportunities to get reminded of our true identity when we gather here together. We sing about who God is and who we are in relationship to that. We sing about how Christ loves us and has made us at one with God. We sing about how the Spirit empowers us to live a life that is worthy of this calling and this adoption and fellowship that we have. We hear the recitation of Scripture, the preaching of the Word, we recite the Apostles' Creed, and we come to the Lord's table every week to partake of the Lord's Supper as a reminder of the great gift that Christ gave to us, His body and His blood. I'd like to invite those who are leading us in our next part of worship and who are serving communion to come up at this time. Because this week, as every week, you're going to be invited to participate in this thanksgiving. So as we sing, we'll stand together in just a moment. And as we sing, as the Lord leads you, you're welcome to come down here, tear a piece of the bread off, which is Christ's body, and dip it into the cup which is the blood of Christ. This is what has made us at one with God. In doing this, you're remembering your rescue, that Jesus saves, Jesus rescues. There's gluten-free elements at the stations in the front here and the one in the back there. And this table is the Lord's table, so the invitation is the Lord's. All are welcome here. Now, we don't dismiss by rows or ushers here. So this really is, as you feel led, you come forward to one of these stations or that station in the back. If you would like to pray with someone at this time, uh, you're free to come down and kneel at the altar here, or we're going to have some people over uh, to your left over here that will help uh, pray with you and for you and over you. So if you'd like prayer with someone, come to this wall over on your left. But I want to give us one more opportunity to respond, which I sometimes do in sermons One more way that we can remember that we're little anointed ones. I'm going to be over here on this wall to your right, probably around halfway back there. And I'm going to have, I have a little vial of of oil here. So I'd like to invite you, if you like, if you want to remember that you are a little anointed one, to come and be anointed with oil. So you can come over here. I'll pray a very quick prayer of blessing over you. And I'll just take a little bit of the oil on my thumb and make the sign of a cross, either on your forehead or you can put your hand out. I'll do it on the back of your hand if forehead is a little strange for you. So as we sing these next uh, song or two, I would invite you to respond in one of those ways. Come here and take communion. Linger at the altar maybe, or you can take it back to your seat and partake of that at any time that you want. 
Respond through singing in the words that are on the screen. Respond through coming over and having someone pray with you. Respond by coming back over here. But let's take some time to really linger together and to think through what is this affirmation that Jesus Christ is God's only Son. So would you please stand as we enter into this time of response to God, and I'll pray with us as we begin to sing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for the time that we get to share together as little anointed ones. I pray that as we enter into this time of response, uh, that your spirit would be near and present within our hearts and that you, God, would lead us. Lead us to respond in whatever way is best for us at this moment. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.